Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to continue looking at this concept that is so deeply entrenched in understanding God's covenant with us. The words remember and forget. And let's read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I'm going to do a spot read it here and there. Verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years. And in verse 3 it says, He humbled you, let you be hungry, fed you with manna. That's the food that was outside the camp every morning underneath the mist. There it was, divine food for them for 40 years every morning. And it says there which you did not know, because that's the meaning of the word manna. Manna is a Hebrew word, which means what is it? Because they never did give a scientific explanation of what it was. Manna. He said, I fed you. I fed you, and you came to understand that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Then in verse 4, Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Did you know that? Their clothes never wore out, and, and they, 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 they never got swollen feet from walking through the desert. And um, he goes on, He's come, you're coming now, he says to these people, um, the 40 years is up and we're about to go into the land of Canaan, the land of God's promise. And he says, it's the Lord your God that is bringing you into this good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied... You shall bless the Lord, your God, for the good land which he's given you. But beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. When you have eaten and are satisfied, when you've built your good houses and lived in them, you've got herds and flocks that multiply, silver and gold multiply, And your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that he's the one that led you through this wilderness, gave you the manna. And if you forget, you will say in your heart, My power, the strength of my hand made me this wealth. No, verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God. It is He who is giving you power to make wealth, that He may confirm His covenant which He swore to your fathers this day. Okay, I got you, you get the point. Okay, now go over to... Third John. It's a little tiny book. It's almost like uh, a memo, you know, written on yellow pad. Um, just a few lines. And he's writing, John the Apostle of Jesus, now an old man, is writing to a friend, Gaius. And he says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray 
that in all respects, in every possible way conceivable, in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Okay, get, get those two. One is in the very heart of the Old Testament and the other is here summing up the New Testament. And let's begin with this one we just read, that, that John... Let me emphasize this. It's a very important point. Um, John wrote this. Of course, it wouldn't make any difference if Paul wrote it, or Peter, or James. But John wrote this. And apart from the fact the Holy Spirit was speaking through John as he spoke through the others who wrote the New Testament, but understand that John is the one that was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's very obvious, as you read through um, the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, that John was indeed a special friend of Jesus. There there were uh, three of them. There was Peter, and there was James, and his brother John. And of those three, John would apparently be Um, at a deeper level of friendship with Jesus. He was a young chap. I I put John around 15 during the Gospels, and um, he he had insight. He he had a a mind enlightened by the Spirit, and while the others were bumbling and stumbling around as to what was happening, John, John got it. John heard, John saw, and he knew Jesus deep in in the heart of Jesus. And, and also it's this John who knew the heart of Jesus so well that when he wrote his first letter, that this is the third, so just go, I mean, turn left outside of this letter and there'll be second John and turn left again and you'll find first John. At, in chapter 5 he gives a great statement on prayer that if we ask anything according to the will of the Father, he hears us. <clears throat> we know that if he hears us, then he gives it to us. So <clears throat> when I read here one of the prayers of John, I know that I am as close to the heart of God as I could possibly be. This this prayer is unquestionably an expression of the will of God from the lips of a man who told us that that we pray in tandem with what he desires for us, that the man who knew Jesus better than any of the others. I, I better take this pretty seriously, you see. And what is it? It's not a usual kind of prayer. It's what one would call a greeting prayer. It's um, a man who who prays almost without um, thinking. That is, he's you don't know whether he's talking to you or praying for you. He's so in the zone. And it's a greeting prayer. So he's just writing this memo, you know, uh, sending it on a sticky pad. You can just write it up there. Just just a memo. But there he has it. Beloved, I pray. He just comes out in the memo. It's, it's longing, his desire, his wish, and it just spills out as a prayer, a greeting. But it's a prayer that in all respects, covering all bases, you may prosper. You may be in health just as your soul prospers. Quite a prayer. Don't hear that prayer prayed very much in some circles. Prosper. What does the word prosper mean? It crops up quite a bit in the Bible, and certainly the idea of it is uh, in many places. It it, it covers in the Bible. Now, I'm not giving you the definition of prosperity in terms of how people in the 21st century think of it. I'm talking about the Scripture. This is how people that we meet in the pages of the Bible, what they understood prosper, it meant that your core being, through your mind and your emotions and the cells of your body, right through to everything that you touch and your work and your relationships, in all of that you have enough Enough what? Well, enough of what it takes. 
You, you have enough of the Spirit of God dwelling in you so that you are filled with the fullness of God, says Ephesians 3. You, you have enough of that presence of God within to enlighten your mind and to ignite and inspire your emotions with divine joy and peace. You, you have health and vitality The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead makes alive your mortal body. And then as you go into your work, you you have this presence with you. And your, your work gives you enough. Enough of everything that work is supposed to give you. And so that means enough money, enough food, enough shelter enough clothes you see what I'm saying enough enough and it's enough that springs from the presence of the Holy Spirit joining you with the Father and the Son enough and and, and it, it's always the, the word prosper means enough but and this is so important enough and to spare there, there's never Whenever you get God involved in anything, there's always, well, the actual word is abundance. I was about to say there's always too much, but it's the same idea because abundance means there's no limit to this. Abundance means you can't count this. It means that this is never going to run out. There's no sense of scarcity. There's no sense of not enough. It's enough. That means what it says. Enough. I've got enough. That's enough. Yes. But prosperity means and you have an abundance, which means you have more than enough. Prosperity to the total person. But getting more specific, as it is used here by John in this greeting prayer, his desire prayer for these, this man, it, it takes on a specific, this expression, prosper and be in good health, that was used by people. It, when you were about to embark on a journey, you're going somewhere and, and your friends and family are waving you off and, and you're, you're getting your camel ready and you're off into the wide open spaces. You're on a journey back there. They would, they would say this, that they would wish. It's a sort of used in their tongue as they were talking the world of that day. It was almost saying, have good luck. It, 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 it was, I mean, it meant very, it's about as good as us saying, have a good day. It, it's sort of meaningless in the mouths of the world. They've got no foundation upon which to hope for it. But they say it. And, and, and so people in the days of John said, It'd be prosperous and be in good health. It was a journey blessing, if you like. It it was as you sent someone off into the unknown. This is what you would say to them. Well, John, in the Holy Spirit, takes that phrase and elevates it into heavenly places and says that this is what God himself desires for you. Only he fills that phrase with his very self. So, prosper in the sense I've, I've given you the definition but now specific sense of what it means here it meant in the journeys of life and this is what the people meant when they said it in that day it meant you will have enough everything that you need for the journey in the journey as situations crop up on the journey may you have enough and to spare in your total being that is whether we're speaking about your deepest core selves your feelings about what is happening your perception of what is happening 
or your physical, material potential needs, everything, wherever you turn, may you turn there with a sense of enough in this journey of life. That is on a journey. And remember, these journeys that were anticipated here are in the first century. This isn't catching a plane. This isn't a Greyhound bus. This isn't even your car, not even your bicycle. If if you're a rich chap, you've got a camel. Lower down the totem pole, you've got a donkey. Lower down, you've got a pack on your back. But you're you're going. There are no motels. You say there's no restaurants. You're you're just out there on a journey. And, And so this word prosper means may you find help. May you be given aid. Everything that you need. May it just be there as you're on your journey. May, may you, you come to a place where there's food. May, may you find persons who are willing to give you a bed for the night. May, may you have enough money for all eventualities. May you find friends along the road. Friends, the right person at the right time. May you find success in reaching your destination. May all things go well with you. Let let your path be a plain path. Even if it goes through very difficult times, may it, it, it take you to go through it. May you have enough. May you find persons in, if there's any days of darkness, may may you find friends on the road who will be your guide, who will tell you and share their knowledge with you and guide you through. May there be no accidents, may there be no thieves, may there be no hazards. You get the idea. May you prosper. And, And as you go on your journey, may you find health, physical strength, And this is written in what shall I call it, the continuous tense. That is, this isn't saying may you have this for a limited period. No, this covers all journeys, all the pathways in life. You you realize that when you were a child, your journey in life It's very different to you as an adult. And do you realize that Jesus attends the journey of a child in a way that a child understands? And some of you can remember when you were a child how you met Jesus in in that very childish way, but it, it shaped your life and fashioned you. Okay, that's your journey into a teenage with all its horrors uh, of today. Um, but Jesus totally, he's, do you realize our God has been a teenager? What a thought. He has entered into the mind of a teenager, seen life through the eyes of a teenager, interpreted life through the brain of a teenager, and chose in all of it, to trust his father and walk in his love he's been where you are teenager and I mean that literally and I mean it without limit he's been there and he is now there in you totally relating to where you're at and he is he is the presence of the father who works all this into his purpose and plan and as an adult, with your relationships and your work, and, and the burdens unique to adulthood, all these journeys, you see, you're no longer on the journey of a child, you're no longer a journey of a teenager, or maybe you haven't yet begun being an adult. All these different journeys, they start and they finish, but in all those journeys... You've got one mandate from the Father through Jesus in you now by the Holy Spirit. May you prosper and be in health 
And may your outside material life be mirrored by your inner. That is, this prosperity is not just limited to an outward thing. I mean, it doesn't mean just have a lot of money or stuff. God help the people if that's all you've got. You must be the most miserable person on the planet. This is a mirror image. He said that that you, you will know a prosperity outward that adequately reflects the inner. And in your inner person, as you walk with your God, so you shall find that your God is in your food and in your clothing and your lodging and your so on. It means, you see, that the Holy Spirit, when it says He's our guide, it doesn't just mean that He guides us into all the spiritual stuff. It means that He guides me in my work. He's there in me and with me in the exams at school. He, he's with me in all my relationships. In every opportunity, in every challenge, in all temptations, I am a person inside the heart of God's love. So, we're facing something here that you say that many Christians don't don't face up to. We're facing um, things like salary, dollars, or whatever your currency is. It's talking about stores where you purchase stuff. It's talking about what you own, your possessions. It talks about your dining room and what you eat. It's talking about your kitchen and what you cook. It's talking about stores where you buy clothes. It's talking about your safety and it's talking about the house that you live in. All these Things are made sacred because God in Jesus came and got totally involved in all of it. The fact that Jesus sat at the kitchen table, that makes a kitchen table sacred. The, the fact that Jesus went to the well to draw water means that drawing water now is a sacred action. The fact that he took out the trash means taking out the trash is an act of worship. God himself has been involved in this. Okay, back to Deuteronomy. Because if ever there was a journey that people of God took, it was that one, a 40-year-long journey. And a journey under great privation, the burning desert sand and everything else that went with the desert. And yet, through every day of that journey, their God who had committed himself to them in covenant, cared for them, watched over them, and his presence was with them. As a hazy, cloudy kind of pillar that overshadowed them like a mushroom cloud, watching, caring, sheltering them from the burning sun. And at night it it turned, you began to see it more clearly as a flaming fire, the fire of God's presence. He was with them, with them. And as we read, he gave them manna to eat every morning, enough for the day. The water came out of the rock, and they had an abundance even in the middle of the desert. They were protected from enemies. They were given strength to protect themselves. He was their guide all through that wilderness to Canaan. His presence was even in the weave of their clothes, so they didn't wear out. And they had health. They went into that wilderness with the words of the Lord in Exodus 15, saying, I am the Lord who heals you. Although a better word would be, I am the Lord, your daily health. And there. Now, he says, remember, that is... This wasn't something that happened in ancient history. You know, when you get this, it can give you goosebumps. It it didn't happen in ancient history. It did, 
but we remember it, that is, we recognize and realize that the God of Exodus, the this incredible covenant Lord who gave them the manna and their clothes and their shoes, that God, Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, is unchanging. He's not locked up in yesterday. He's not ancient history. That same God is, is here now. We remember. That is, we act in this day in the same relationship to that God. And we do like people who live in that God. And we expect of Him. And we share life with Him. He says, never forget. Remember. Remember. I gave you manna. I gave you water. I kept your... So now that you're leaving that journey, it's over, and you're going into a new journey, into a land that will be totally different. You will now work as ranchers. You will now build houses, and and you will now go to stores. But he says, do not forget. Remember, I'm still that God who gives you power in a totally different situation. Now in this new situation, as you build your houses and you have your land, don't you dare say, I'm some pretty good chap, you know. I, I, I really, I've got the know-how, you see. I, I was able to make all this money to buy all this. No, says the Lord. I gave you the know-how. I'm your wisdom. I'm in your work. I'm in your mind as you work. I'm the one who causes you to prosper. See, remember that. Don't ever let, don't ever think that, that you're on your own here doing your own thing. Don't boast of your independence because it doesn't exist. I'm the one who carries you. I'm the one who inspires you. And when you act, it is I who gives my strength and my wisdom. Some people have never thought about this. I mean, never, never thought that we, we say Christ in you, the hope of glory, and we, we, we relegate that to, you know, what I call it, the, the spiritual stuff, you see. And so, and so when it comes down to going to the store, the beginning of the school year, well, now you're on your own, you see. No, you're not. Don't you dare, he says, do not forget. Do not push me back into ancient history and say, wasn't that an amazing thing? And you go to Bible school and now you pass a silly test on explaining it. No, don't do that. Remember and start doing it. Expecting, looking, excited, putting your foot out of bed in the morning to know that there's not a shoe I put on. There's not a piece of clothing I put on, but that he and I share this challenge together. And that's the way it was from the very beginning. Have you ever thought about this? Many people have hardly thought about what happened at the beginning. When when the Lord created Adam, and he created this fantastic planet... Where was the Garden of Eden? I don't mean that geographically. I mean, you see, the whole planet was one great glorious explosion of life. Of of, of everything that could grow, every tree, every herb, every fruit, every vegetable. Just an explosion of it. But in all of that tangled glory of creation it says the Lord hear me the Lord planted a garden or a park the Lord was the first real estate developer he carved out an area 
seems like a pretty big one but he carved out this area and he put a wall around it God's into real estate God's into where you live and, and, and it says he planted that is it's not just the tangled glory of exploding life out there this is planted this has got paths this is a neat a planted a garden with, with trees and flowers in abundance and it says that he put gold and other precious stuff into the rocks quite a place and and already creation itself has been wasteful abundance oh we've got such minuscule minds do, do you understand that the creator God is into wasteful abundance I mean look at the number of eggs that that fish produce look at look at a, a school of fish I mean it's ridiculous there's too many too much and I could keep going look at the seeds that pour out of flowers the, the acorns that drop from trees is far more than we're ever going to see used that's God. He's into that. He never does anything measuring out and saying you can have so much. He never says, clean your plate. Think of the starting children. No, 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 that's not God. That was your grandmother. No. He, he's into abundance. And now when he prepares the first dwelling place for the human being... He makes it a fantastic place, overloaded with an abundance of trees. And he says, all the trees you may eat, fantastic place. And he says, there's gold in the hills. You're going to need it one of these days. Not right now, but you will need it. And it's there when you need it. Gold, precious stones. When I read Genesis 1 and 2, the planet and the persons that God created to inhabit the planet are prosperous. They have enough and too much. They're up to their earlobes in abundance. And of course, as your soul prospers, because those first humans it says they walked inside the glory of God they walked in that park that park of delight for that's what Eden means and there they laughed and they played and they shared their life with the creator father and son and holy spirit they lived inside this love of the Holy Trinity and therefore the, the park was filled with peace it was filled with limitless joy and the sound of laughter rang down the trails they were very successful at being human prosperous you say prosperous in their core right through to their outermost being and sin, when the serpent came into that garden, what serpent said and what they now believe will have an effect upon everything. Sin is not something that, that is all about you know, somewhere inside you and about heaven and hell and doom and judgment and no 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 sin is a subtle poisonous gas you could say that has gotten into the entire body of the human race and into all of creation and of course now my definition and my understanding of prosperity is all changed 
the very gifts of God that he showered upon that first humanity, showered it upon them without their asking even. It says that the Adam watched as God gave him all of this. But now, sin has said, you shall be as God. You shall be independent of God. You'll not be his welfare case. You in your own power, your own strength, you will achieve the being of God. And suddenly, prosperity changed. Prosperity suddenly meant that I would have enough stuff. I would have certainly enough money, possessions, in order to give to me the status of a sort of God-likeness. And because that was a universal feeling, if you had more money and stuff, then everybody would sort of think you are a special human being. And you would trust in your money to protect you. And everybody sort of understood that, that if you've got the money, you can protect yourself. And if I've got money, you see, well, then Satan was right. I can be as God. And with my money, I can control people. So I've got to have money. I've got to have money to prove that the friendly snake was true. For if I have money, then I can be like God. If I have stuff, they will almost worship me. In fact, they'll actually call me an idol. They will, they will. They're, they're, they'll drool at the mouth over me. And, and they'll put it on the cover of Time magazine and call money my worth, my value. No mention of the value of a human which is in how God sees us. No, this is, my bank account gives me my worth. My bank manager is my supreme friend, you see. My credit card is a very present help in time of need. What else do you need? But of course, money. I don't have it. But I've got to pretend I do so that I'll at least get away for a while looking like God. And so we mask ourselves with loans and mortgages that are hopelessly beyond our ability to pay, but it gives everyone the impression, and that's what counts, doesn't it? They, they, they think I'm like a god. And so my knuckles are wide, grasping after what I cannot afford in order to put on the impression. Oh, and they call that prosperity. It is insanity, not prosperity. Hmm. Money, stuff, becomes my survival mechanism. If I have enough of it, I can survive the future. And I look at you and you've got more than me, or at least you seem to. So I envy you. And it twists me and distorts me. And I spend my life thinking about what I have. Terrified that I might lose it. And so therefore I've got to have more. And I've got to have more. I've got to have more. And I hoard it and keep it. Because that's where life is, isn't it? And I can sit back and say, my journey is better than your journey. Look what I've got. I'm wiser than you. I'm greater than you. Look. Huh. And the great lie. And incidentally, it's a lie that's believed by people who do not have Go, go into our ghettos and projects and they all believe the lie that if only I could have, if only I could win the lottery, if only I could have money, then I would be free from anxiety and worry. I would have joy and I'd have peace. No. 
you just have bigger anxiety now. You'd worry about much bigger things and you'd be as miserable as you were before. But Jesus said in Matthew 6 that after these things, the money, the clothes, the house, the stuff, after the, the unbeliever, which he calls the Gentile, those outside the covenant, they seek it. And it means drooling at the mouth. It means grabbing it, grasping it 24-7. Gotta have it. Okay. Into that world, Jesus comes. God incarnate. Have you ever thought that through? God, says John in chapter 1 of his gospel, he said, became flesh. Jesus wasn't here as a tourist. He didn't come just on a quick visit. He came inside our human, human as we came out of the Garden of Eden, fallen, broken, deceived. Jesus took that human to him so that he could relate to how we saw life, how we saw God and all how we had twisted and distorted and smashed his beautiful face into some ugly God of judgment. Jesus came inside of us so that he could feel our feelings. He could see with our inside eyes. He became immersed in our fallen world of anxiety and fears. Inside our senses that tried to be Lord over every interpretation we had of life. That is, he came into every aspect of our journey. He got inside our anxiety so he knew how we felt in our fretting. But in it all, he refused to believe in that twisted, distorted God that we had invented. He refused to listen to the serpent. And knowing how we saw and how we felt, he refused to tread that path. And instead believed in his Father, the true God, the beautiful God, the God of love. And so he walked in our footsteps, he walked in our world, but refused what we were seeing, what we believed. And instead believed and trusted in his Father and obeyed his Father. And he knew that his father gave him his identity. His father bestowed his love upon him and says, You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It was the father who was his security. It was the father who ultimately cared. It was the father behind the food and the clothes and the work and every detail. He said, I trust the Father. And, and he got inside our social life, inside of weddings, inside of parties. He even had a picnic up on the hills by the Galilee. He's inside a real home where real humans lived. He got inside Peter's business of fishing. He faced all the fears. He faced all the anxieties. He faced it from inside. So he saw how we thought about that. And then he says, no, Father, Father, who is love? He faced sickness in its hopelessness. And he says, Father, and he brought the hope of heaven into the sick bodies and healed them. Do you realize... <laughs> you might take two or three days to think about this. He said, I I'm sorry, Jesus is the most prosperous human who ever lived. And he lived his prosperity in the midst of a peasant society that 
by our standards or even their own standards lived at the edge of poverty worked carpenter of Nazareth he faced our sorrow he faced our grief he took to himself our curse our death and I say it again he is the most prosperous who ever lived for his soul was engulfed with the love of the father and he never had a care an anxiety a worry a fear but he confronted all of life with the love power and strength of his father who was in him and in his resurrection from death he carried us into his life resurrection I mean that now we get into really spiritual stuff aren't we <laughs> resurrection what was the first words that the only human being to date that has risen from the dead what was his first words as he sat there with a the body that couldn't die do you have something to eat ah I thought he'd call a prayer meeting. I thought he'd say he called the neighbors for a Bible study. No, he says, is anything for supper? Doesn't that tell you something? And when the Holy Spirit came, makes big point, repeats it, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Christ in you includes your body, includes your mind, how you think about these things includes your emotions that's life isn't it every minute every detail that fills every minute what you have in the scripture is a God who is so utterly one with us together with us there's no separation he is with you in you in paying your bills in buying your food and so on and so on remember that as you sit to pay your bills remember as you go to the store as you are in the kitchen as you face life in the work in the home in the school remember 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 you are one at this micro moment you are one <coughs> with him who never leaves you nor forsakes you but you see <clears throat> spanning the centuries the church and I say that term very broadly the church has forgotten everything I've, I've been talking about the church has forgotten that is everything we read in Deuteronomy everything that we read in the Gospels in the church said interesting history we have persons whose names are revered in certain sections of the evangelical church who have put it in print that when the last apostle died that's the end of all the miracles and the supernatural we're just now left with dead words and study them and memorize them and go to church and hear somebody else talk about them and go home and realize the whole jolly lot's irrelevant because the power of the present God says the great names of our church it's all finished, it's all done, it's all over, it doesn't count anymore or in biblical language you have forgotten the Lord your God you've put him back there in history and you've padlocked him and said it, it doesn't and there's no way when it comes to these matters we're on our own in fact worse than that I suppose because in so many areas among believers the word success and prosperity are looked upon with grave suspicion you're a Christian don't you know and you're not supposed to want success you're not supposed to want prosperity good lord you sound like a communist 
Well, what do you mean when I, I've just shown you from the beginning of the scripture and how we just, we just touched on it. Well, we could spend weeks on this. Where, where his abundance in these material, physical things. But to remember it comes from him. It doesn't define your worth. It doesn't define your security. He's your worth. He's your security. But he provides. Oh no. Says so many of our revered leaders over the centuries. That's not so. God, you see, wants you to be sick. Don't you understand that? He wants you to have pain because that's where he teaches you lessons. I know that's not in the Bible, but that's the truth and he really gets a kick out of you being in poverty he teaches you lessons and if you were really humble you would say I don't, I don't need that I don't need I, I. like one person who was revered as a saintly chap in his church and we were talking about these things and I'll never forget he folded his hands you know how they do and he put on that sick tone you've got to learn it you've got to be in, in some churches for a long time to really get it right but 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 it's that whining pretending to be humble tone and he said well all i've ever wanted is just enough for me and my little family and then i'll thank god for that i could have slapped him what that, that's supposed to be holiness? That's human. No. Humility is knowing who God is and who He has made me and to celebrate it to the full. Trusting Him. No, God didn't make me just to have enough for me and my family. You miserable, selfish creature. Don't you realize he gave, his, his will is revealed that you should have enough in order to bless the world. Out of you should flow rivers of living water, which includes material stuff to people in desperate need. No, you see, they, in, in the scripture, I don't care what anybody says, there is no separation between my spirit and the Holy Spirit in my spirit and my going to the store to buy groceries. That, that's one act, and that's a sacred act. That's a holy thing to buy clothes. Because Jesus did. God came into flesh and assumed our life and sacralized it. What does remembering look like? I, I'd better, I'd really better find. Jesus said, be anxious for nothing. That wasn't a nice little thing you hang in the kitchen. That is Jesus defining the life that he is sharing with us. No anxiety. And then he said, my peace I give to you. Take seriously Matthew 6, where he says that, that all this clamor to, to, you know, if only I had more, if only get money, if I, he says, after those things the Gentiles seek. He says, your heavenly Father knows, and if he knows, it's implicit in the word, if he knows, then he is your supply. So be anxious for nothing. hear me very carefully anxiety and fear cannot exist in the present moment did you hear that anxiety and fear cannot exist in the present moment the oxygen, the strength of anxiety is the past and the future. It, anxiety is when I remember the events of the past into the present while at the same time forgetting God and leaving Him in the past. So that something that happened to me and threatened me now overwhelms me and drowns me. And we call it anxiety. Okay. 
I really don't have time. And I'm, I'm considering just leaving this and coming back to it next week. You see, let me quickly say it, that something happens in my past, and that past could be five minutes ago, it could be 40 years ago, it could be 20 years ago, but something happened, and that happening challenged me. Might be a good challenge. Might be opportunity. Could be trouble to the max. It could be a trial, temptation. But it happened. And in its happening, it exposed my insufficiency. As soon as I challenge opportunity, trial, trouble came, I suddenly felt through my senses, relating to my human existence, I'm not sufficient for this. I don't have enough. I can't handle this. I, I've never been here before. This is a new situation. I'm out of my safety zone. I don't have anything from my past that I, I, I've li walked this path before. No, you haven't. This is new. I'm not enough for this. I'm not enough. Those, those, you're, you're hearing it down inside of you. I'm not enough. And there's another echoing voice inside of me saying, you certainly are not enough, are you? Boy, you're not enough. You just don't have what it takes, do you? And I'm standing there and this process I'm trying to talk about so quickly, that's, that's anxiety happening where from within me. Says, I can't, I can't, I can't. I don't know what to do here. I don't know where to turn. This situation's impossible. And then right on its heels comes shame. I ought to be enough. I should be enough. And then double dip shame. I can't let anybody know how I feel about this. I can't let anybody know about this because then they'll all see that I'm insufficient. And then comes the voice of Satan, the accuser. You're not enough. You're not enough. God, you're stupid, you idiot, to get yourself in this situation. You're not enough, good Lord. Everybody thinks you are, but you really know you're just, you're a loser. And there's frantic, it's circular thought, and sometimes it's a very small circle. I mean, you're chasing your tail because it's that frantic, circular thinking how can I fix this? How can I fix it? I could do this, I could do that. No, I couldn't. No, I couldn't. No. And I've already caught up with myself to say, again, how can, how can we do this? And, and sometimes persons of a religious bent will pray at that point, but their prayers are all part of the anxiety. So they, they pray, how are you going to do this? Oh God, do something, do something. But how could he? He could do this, he could do that, he could do the other. No, no, I... And then we come up with our solution and say, God, you've got to do it this way. And we spiral down into despair, to depression. We are remembering that event into this present moment. And with it comes all its terrible powers of fear and anxiety. And I say it could have been 40 years ago and yet you get up in the morning and around and around you go. Is it How crazy can we be? He said, she said, yes, 20 years ago and you're still saying, how can we fix it? How can we fix it? What should I do? If only you hadn't said that. If only You are remembering that event right into now. And you remember what happened five minutes ago into now and you won't let it go. Here you are. I've got to fix it. got to fix it. Becomes your identity. Or a future event that is not here yet. But you remember it into the present and, and you plunge into all the fear that I'm not able, I'm not sufficient, I can't do it. And it... it Maybe that's the best illustration. In doing that, it's as if it's already happened. And your heart beats and your adrenaline rolls and you have all the emotional, chemical reaction as if the thing had happened. And it hasn't even happened. Because you've remembered and that's the power of remembering. You bring it from the past. You bring it from the future. And it is 
40 years ago, but it's happening now. Next week, but it's happening now. Jesus steps into that mad world and he says, let me teach you to forget. Yes, it's in Matthew 6. He said, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. That is, it happened. Oh yes, we don't deny it happened. It happened. Then lock it into history. It happened there. Yes, it's on my calendar. It's going to happen next week. Then lock it next week. And come into this present moment. What is the truth about you right now? That I am a child of God. That I call him Father. And this God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit has introduced himself as I am not the I was I am in this moment I am limitless creative love in this moment I am all the wisdom that you need in this moment I am the conductor of all that happens it is my show it is my play hear me this present moment leaving the past where it belongs and leaving the future where it belongs and recognizing in this moment I am in the I am Christ in me me in Christ awash in his love his wisdom his strength his power to say, what are you up to, Lord? How do we handle this? And in that rest, I mean, rest because He is enough. For whatever it is, He is enough. And what He said and she said, He is enough to handle them in His own jolly good time. Come off your God throne for goodness sake and just be the child who says, Daddy, look after them. The word that Paul uses, Philippians 4, I've learned in everything to be content. That means self-sufficient in his sufficiency. So it means in that place of rest, if there's something I can do, should do, he will cause me to know that it will rise it will sneak into my flow of thoughts that's in him and I'll see that's it but if there's nothing I can see to do well that doesn't change him he's still my father and he is still handling it even as we speak so I'll rest in him and I don't tell him what to do and I don't try and figure out if he's going to part the Red Sea again because my remembrance is of who he is, not what he did. I'm not trying to redo his miracles. He'll do miracles that have never been seen before. He will... Do you see what I mean? God's not so boring as to do the Red Sea over again. Satan would do a thing like that. He's so boring, he hasn't got a new temptation since the beginning of the world. He tempted Adam the same way as he tempted Jesus and tempts you. This our Father is always different. He, he's always brand new, new, fresh, newly created every morning are your mercies, O Lord. Well, I am going to quit there. I, I'm, I'm telling you this. Go, hear me, go to your place of stillness. Stillness now. The whole world will say, you ought to be worried. No, you ought not to be worried. You put that event into its proper place, which is maybe yesterday, or wherever it was in time and space. You put it in tomorrow, wherever. And in this moment, who are you? Right now, you're this glorious person indwelt by the living God. Be still. 
in this place of now, this present moment, this is where you are seated in heavenly places. The trouble is 99% of the population is so immersed in the past or drowned in the future, they never live in now. Now is not bringing the worries of yesterday into today and nor the fears of tomorrow. Now is now. That was, that shall be. Now. In my place of stillness, in this now I discover, I remember all who Jesus is, all he did carrying me with him and all he now is in me unchanging that's the peace of God that passes human comprehension because human comprehension is always the past and the future but in this present moment is where you sit down in heavenly places I guess I'll talk about this next week Now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to this present moment that pulsates with the love of your Father. The same love that he has toward Jesus, who dwells in you by his Spirit that you should join the dance of God and rest in his prosperity. So I bless you, so it is.